Hey everyone, welcome back to Season 3 of In the Spotlight, the SciCom podcast brought to you by Northwestern University's Science Policy Afri Task or SPOT. We're so excited to be back, and we have a lot of great content coming your way. New guests, new episodes, as well as new members of our team. My name is Nicholas, and I'm the co-host of the show. Here, we talk to graduate students as well as other early career researchers about their work, what brought them to it, and why they do it. If you hadn't had a chance to check out our previous seasons, I highly recommend them. We've chatted about a fascinating range of topics, all the way from vibrational microscopy to endodontics. I'm sure we'll find something that catches your eye. Our very first guest this season is Daniel Giffney. Daniel is a technician in a neuroscience lab at the University of Edinburgh studying autism. Thanks very much for coming, Daniel. It's a pleasure to be here. So if you've listened to the show before, which I hope you have, and if you haven't, I recommend it. Uh, we always ask one question in the beginning. Why science? What made you choose this as, as, as your career, as your, um, as your pursuit in, uh, in, in, in your professional life? Um, I guess I started when I was young. Like most people, I kind of got the bug. Um, even before I can remember, I used to kind of annoy the hell out of my parents by just saying, why, why, why? Kind of constantly trying to get to the root of things, trying to get deeper. And, you know, sometimes that can be great. And personally, I find that like, uh, like so fun to explore that, to, to, to go deeper and try and learn as much as possible about a specific topic. But obviously that needs to be kind of somewhat tempered because um, I think my little niece is turning out like me uh, because they have they have a little hamster in her class and recently it it died and I think it's mostly to teach the kids about like death and understanding like you can have a pet and it can pass on but her first response was like cut it open I want to see how it works and I worry that I've kind of like just through my interactions with her like have passed that on because uh, I remember reading like Newtonian physics for toddlers to her um so hopefully at some stage that'll kind of time will temper that you know gnawing curiosity with some empathy and and uh <laughs> kindness yeah no it's uh I think nine times out of ten it's always something in the beginning uh mm. of, of the why of things that initial curiosity um mm. I remember hearing or reading something about how how people who pursue sciences just never really grew up <laughs> it's just you never lost that curiosity oh, that's so fair oh, I wish I'd said that now yeah because I remember thinking that one stage Okay, so you got this bug when you're younger that made you interested in in science. But what aspect of science are you currently working in? So I specifically work in neuroscience now, and uh, like again, I first got interested in neuroscience uh, as like a little kid. So like one of my first memories as a child was like looking in a mirror and realizing that I was like you know a person in the world, but not just like a a, an experience not just a subjective experience of the world but I was a person like other people are, are are people and I think most people realize that quite early on whereas I was quite a slow learner and I, I kind of couldn't get over this idea that I have this internal experience and I'm also a person in the world so I kind of looked into like how did this how does the how do these personal experiences come about how did these qualia come about and so I got interested in kind of philosophy and like somewhat in religion because it's the kind of the idea of the soul and the experience kind of ties in there but then I eventually came across like Descartes ideas of the mind-body problem and I feel like that kind of perfectly summed up 
my ideas around like this division between the internal world and the external world. So, and then thinking more about it, rather than going down to the conclusion that Descartes went to, um, I kind of realized that uh, my internal experience was caused by the brain and not an incorporeal soul. So I decided that the brain would be a good thing to research. Okay. That's a, that's a fascinating answer. I think, uh, I'm sure everyone's had that, uh, that initial, um, experience of I am me experiencing the outside world. I don't think everyone's quite connected it to the philosophical and religious <laughs> ramifications of it. So that's super interesting. Yeah. I was a stressed out eight year old. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite, quite a, quite a solemn eight year old. So. <laughs> Okay, so neuroscience, fascinating topic. The whole uh, question of what is experience, what is perception, what is consciousness. But obviously, it's it's a hugely broad field, all the way from computational neuroscience to cognitive neuroscience, circuits, behavioral, molecular. Is there a specific field or, or subfield of neuroscience that, uh, that you're particularly interested? Like, what's your day-to-day research look like? Currently, I work kind of across the scales looking at autism. So... I really enjoy working with the stuff from the DNA to the protein to the kind of structural um, morphologies of uh, of neurons, and then all the way up to behavior. So, um, so in case any of your listeners aren't kind of aware of what autism is, you probably heard of it in the in the zeitgeist because it's quite popular in the media. But I don't think it always has the best uh, representation in the media. But it's typically uh, characterized by impaired uh, social communication and social interactions alongside kind of restricted or repetitive behaviors, interests or activities. Um, And it is kind of an innate uh, brain-wide or whole brain and lifelong uh, disorder. And so I look at it from multiple different scales. So because it's kind of affecting the social aspects of the human brain, there's so many different ways it can come about. So it can be caused by like, lots of different mutations. I think about 30% of the mutations are monogenic, means, meaning they're caused by like one mutation in the genome. So in order to describe the, the ways that autism can come about in these mutations, uh, I think I'm, the best way to do it is through the idea of the tree. So it can, it can form at like a really small scale within the cell. So at the DNA, it can, it can affect how the DNA coils. Um, so there are different like, models where there's mutations in the proteins that cause this coiling of the DNA. And you consider that like nearly at the seed stage of, um, of a tree, whereas more commonly, um, there would be mutations in the protein that are found all over the cell. And you could think of this as like almost a mutation in what's going on in the bark of a tree. And then kind of further up, uh, you could, um, there's other proteins that can be mutated that cause different changes in the structure of a neuron and, and in its dendrites, which are the branches that come off the end of a, a neuron. And you could think of that, those are like changes in the branches of a tree. And then finally, like quite commonly, there can be changes at the level of receptors. So you can think of those as kind of how the flowers function and how they pollinate one another. So there are mutations at all of these different levels in autism, but they can all produce these kind of external um, behaviors of kind of changes in sociology, changes in how sociable a person is and how well they communicate as well as this repetitive behaviors. So you can nearly think of 
So each neuron in a neurotypical each neuron in a neurotypical person's brain as a tree. And imagine if there were 80 billion trees in this really like intense, beautiful forest. And so there's so many of these trees and they've so many connections. Like I think it's hundreds of trillions of flowering connections between them. But on, on these larger scales, when you're looking at all these multiple mutations, even though they're quite different in their basic level, they can produce these similar outputs. And so one of the most common things you can see in an autistic brain is an excitatory inhibitory imbalance. In a neurotypical brain, there would be kind of a mix of smaller trees and bigger trees. So that if uh, a big tree falls, it may knock over one or two other big trees. But once it kind of falls on a small tree, it kind of ends the cascade, it ends the domino effect. Whereas if it's all big trees, they can kind of continue to cascade. And even though it's not as um, dramatic as all of these trees, all of these neurons collapsing, um, though there is kind of an overlap between epilepsy and um, ASD, or autism spectrum disorder, um, some people think that this kind of excitatory inhibitory imbalance is what causes kind of a lot of the symptoms that we would associate with autism. Interesting. So to try to relate, so there's this concept that you mentioned of excitatory inhibitory imbalance. How mm. would, how, how could you try to, could you describe that a little bit more in depth for me of what, what, yeah. what does that mean in terms of either your, your tree analogy or, or, or biology? Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll start with the tree analogy and then we'll try and go more into the biology, but basically, um, in autism, the, there are these excitatory neurons, which kind of fire. And typically, um, there are inhibitory neurons that kind of slow down the firing of these cells, uh, and they play a role. But in uh, autism, it seems that these bigger trees or these excitatory synapses and, and cells are growing quicker because they have this sudden kind of, uh, growth in a critical period before the age of three. So typically, um, autistic, um, children will have kind of slightly larger heads and they kind of have a higher level of cell growth in the brain. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas, so if you can imagine in a forest, if all the big trees shot up suddenly, there would be kind of a dearth of space for the smaller trees to kind of play the role that they typically do. Uh, mm -hmm. And so if there's no inhibitory synapses, no small trees, there can be these big cascades in the brain and that can lead to multiple things. So something like um, epilepsy, but in, in terms of most people with autism, it can produce issues with sensory gating. So how much of the world that they actually process. And this mm -hmm. has kind of manifested, uh, at least within clinical literature, as the intense uh, world theory. So a lot of people who have autism struggle with kind of sensory overload. So they can get um, overwhelmed by a lot of information coming in. And a lot of people think this is due to cascades in the excitatory neurons in their brain that can't be kind of calmed down by inhibitory interneurons. So I, I, I see that, that there's this seems to be this uh, underlying theory in, in the autism field about how this excitatory inhibitory imbalance may lead to a lot of, of cognitive symptoms that we're seeing in, in ASD. Could you talk a little bit more about what these um, perception imbalances are you mentioned perception overload um i'd be curious to hear a little bit more about that 
Um, yeah, so typically the things you would um, see are kind of presented in the media, people kind of covering their ears or, or stimming in response to being overwhelmed. But there's been other kind of a bit more controlled uh, lab experiments where they kind of show that um, autistic people can kind of, they're kind of processing the whole picture rather than honing in on specific pieces of information that are, are important to more neurotypical individuals. So a, a good example is kind of some optical illusions like uh, like a Necker cube. So, you know, you can imagine you're looking at it one way and then suddenly your perception switches. There has been studies showing that the way autistic people switch between different perceptions is different to neurotypical people. In some studies, it's it's quicker and in some studies, it's it's slower, but it's, it's quite distinct. And I think it, a lot of it has to do with the, the particular mutation, the cohort, and the actual um, the presentation of the perceptual illusion. Interesting. Yeah, I guess perception is so individual to each to each to ourselves that I guess it's quite difficult to see how other people see the world, especially if they're not seeing it quite the same way that we are. So you mentioned um, in the beginning that you looked specifically at monogenic mutations, right? So mutations in one gene only that seem to cascade into this autism spectrum disorder, which is 30%. Do you know anything about the other 70%, right? Which is over, over 50% of autism cases. Mm. Um, do we know anything about why those happen? Um, so some of them can be copy number variants. So they're kind of harder to reproduce in, in animal models. Um, so it's just basically when, uh, piece of DNA is replicating instead of moving on to another section of DNA it just keeps copying the one section and then that can be deleterious in terms of producing the protein um a lot of the times it's because the we don't really fully understand what causes autism like like I was saying it is innate and it happens kind of before the age of three typically uh, and that's when kids are diagnosed but it, it can be multiple genes interacting in a certain way that can produce a level of genetic difficulty that the the brain needs to overcome in order to function. And that's the thing I find so interesting about uh, autism is that even though these disorders, whether they're monogenic or whether they're sporadic, they kind of manifest in a similar way. So some people have been talking about whether the mechanisms that we're describing in terms of excitatory inhibitory imbalances are directly like gene uh, protein, and then these excitatory inhibitory imbalances, or whether the excitatory inhibitory imbalances are caused as like a, as the brain tries to mitigate this issue as like a compensatory mechanism. So yeah, I found that super interesting. I remember reading, um, we did we did a journal club with my my lab a couple of weeks ago into looking into um, autism. And mm -hmm. it was this paper that came out, I think a couple of weeks ago, in which they're using organoids. Um, mm -hmm cortex organoids try to figure out um, common pathways between different ASD mutations. Mm, um, yeah. And, and we had this whole discussion in the lab of like, is there a point in, in kind of categorizing these individual mutations or should we start categorizing pathology instead um, of like, can we classify by pathology instead of by That's initial uh, event, mutation event or, or, or environmental event or innate event or, yeah, so basically where I work, the Simons Initiative for the Developing Brain, they, I think people are aware that um, 
these are different disorders and to a certain degree people are kind of driven to stratify them uh so that they could be dealt with as individual disorders like way back in the day um schizophrenia and dementia were considered kind of one disorder dementia precox and you know dementia that comes with age and but late, like later on they were segregated whereas i think it's really important to understand what is happening across these mechanisms because it just like in in alzheimer's there's kind of just a level of pathology that is kind of general like across mm-hmm. the brain that you can see these compensatory mechanisms coming up so to understand why these mechanisms come up and how the brain copes with them is just as valid as segregating them individually if you can compensate for these things upstream that would be ideal in terms of therapeutic treatments but yeah you need to take it from both angles mm-hmm. yeah i guess that's one of the major difficulties with all these um behavioral diagnostics and disorders is it's there's such subtle differences between them that sometimes you know it's it's autism spectrum disorder because there's it's not one specific pathology right it's just a mix of, of observational symptoms that we are like okay if you have three of these 15 you're categorized as, as asd versus you know if you have two is it still if you have 15 is it a complete if you have a completely separate three is that still autism spectrum disorder or very interesting uh yeah and i think some of the stratification can lead to confusion because there is a lot of terminology when it comes to autism and like basically it it, it was described um by a guy called leo Kanner uh back in the 1940s and at the same time by a guy called uh hans asperger and they've kind of gone down two different routes because um much of the stuff that i would be looking at are more of these monogenic you know profound versions of the mutations whereas i think a lot of the way autism is represented in the media is through kind of Asperger's um, hypotheses where he kind of took people who had average or above average intelligence and examined them who were presenting with kind of autistic traits. And even some of his patients went on to win Nobel Prizes. Um, So I think that can lead to, even though people have special interests quite often in autism, it can lead to this skewed perspective of savant syndrome uh, when there are other, like, like I was saying, there's so many, such a spectrum, such a range, and some people really struggle to communicate, whereas other people have these immense talents, uh, and it's very easy to romanticize different ends of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very, very well put. So, okay, so you mentioned that you study autism on these scales ranging from the DNA level all the way to the the, the anatomy of a neuron. And, and synaptic connections between them. So what does your day-to-day look like? You know, what, what is it that you're actually doing in the lab? So basically on a day-to-day uh, basis, um, I would be working on producing models and kind of confirming that they are uh, working genotypically uh, and then in terms of the RNA. So I'm confirming basically that the mutation is there on a DNA level, on an RNA level, and on a protein level. So we look at this GWAS studies uh, and we see what uh, mutations are different in autistic individuals and non-autistic individuals. And then because it is easier to do, we kind of insert monogenic versions of these mutations into animals. And so once they've been inserted through PCR and then other viral processes, um, I basically have to confirm that it is actually 
in the DNA by doing genotyping. I confirm it's there in the RNA, and then we confirm it's there in the proteins. So that's mostly what I do. I kind of fill in the gaps for other people's research to go ahead. So we have all these models and we can confirm that they are as accurate uh, as we can get to the human versions of these disorders. And so other people will do further experiments with them. So once these models have been generated and confirmed, they're then passed on to other people in the team that do uh, behavioral assessments and other kinds of assessments. And one of my favorite things about working in the CB is there's so many different types of research, so many different levels that they're looking at once these mutations have been put in, in terms of like the cell activity. And particularly the things I am excited about is the behavioral uh, phenotypes and how they look at them within Ireland. Yeah, that's super, that's interesting. So validating mouse models, I'm guessing. Of... Oh, no, sorry. I should have, I should have clarified that it's actually rat models that we work on because uh, even though mice make a really good uh, genetic model for, for lots of other things, we've kind of both been generating uh, rat models and also getting rat models in because rats are more pro-social, whereas mm -hmm. mice kind of will keep them themselves if, if possible. Whereas, like I was saying, rats will form colonies. And so it is more natural for them to interact in these scenarios rather than it being kind of just a thing that happens in labs. Okay, I see. Very cool. I know it's quite difficult to um, to observe social behaviors um, in, in animal models just because it's, it's difficult to replicate a sort of ecological habitat. So, okay, super cool. Autism is such an interesting, uh, interesting and such an important topic. So autism is this... As you mentioned, it, it is quite prevalent in, in the zeitgeist and in, in the public conversation about it. And obviously, the research that you're part of has hugely important ramifications in, uh, in, in the way that autism is perceived, as well as the potential ways that, that the public and governments view autism. How do you think that the public kind of views um, your, your research? Um, and is there some sort of disconnect between the public perception of it versus things that you're learning as, as an academic in the field? In terms of um, perception um, and in terms of policy, uh, that is like a really good question. I think like what I've been saying up until this point, it's important to realize that autism is such a broad disorder and so different between different individuals, just like any two individuals who are neurotypical can be like very different. There's such a profound range in terms of how people exhibit their symptoms and how they feel about their disorders and how the people around them, their carers and their family or everyone and their community feels about it. But I think um, it's a very difficult thing to implement policies for, because like I was saying, we don't know the exact molecular causes. So it's hard to have therapeutic interventions, but at the same time, it's hard to implement like policies because um, it's kind of like a, a personal thing. I think it would be fantastic if there was more people involved in caring and interacting with people with autism so that, so that the world could be a bit more welcoming to people who are neurodiverse. Because there are definitely autistic people have historically been with us for a long time and they will be with us for a long time into the future because it's such a, a broad range. Um, I think we shouldn't always focus on just the understanding of the mechanisms because I think that can lead people down a kind of deterministic or stigmatizing road. We should try to try and focus on making our society more welcoming to neurotypical people. And I think that happens at quite young ages of like 
interactions and exposures, whereas rather than kind of segregating people um, based on how people learn most efficiently, I think it'd be really beneficial to kind of have people get getting exposure and getting interactions with people with autism uh, more often. Yeah, um, I think a lot of it is based in terms of like trying to be efficient uh, rather than compassionate. And I think like to bring it back to the metaphor of, um, of forests, like if we only cultivate one type of crop, if we only cultivate one type of forest, we become, you know, boring. There's so much we gain from, uh, from our diversity. Well, unfortunately, we are running out of time. If someone's listening to this episode and, and you'd like them to understand one thing and one thing only about your work or your area of research, what is it that you'd like to put in the spotlight? I think the main point I would try and drive home about my research and about autism in general is just the complexity and heterogeneity of it is what makes it so fascinating. Um, we shouldn't get bogged down just because things don't fit into our narratives or just because something may be uncomfortable. I think if we try and work through uh, both understanding these mechanisms and kind of understanding the people with these disorders will be so much richer of a society for it. Okay. That's a great answer. So thanks again so much for coming on the podcast. It's genuinely the, your research and your area of study is so fascinating. It's been incredible uh, talking to you. Uh, I hope everyone listening feels the same way. It was an absolute pleasure. Listeners, I also want to remind all of you to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does make a difference in getting this show out to a wider audience. If you want to connect with us on social media, you can find this podcast on Twitter at SpotlightThePod. This podcast was brought to you by Northwestern University's Science Policy Outreach Task Force, or SPAWN. And you can learn more about us at our website, spot.northwestern.edu, or on Twitter at SpotForceNU. Thank you very much for listening, and I will see you in the next episode. <laughs>